Welcome, glad you're here. It's PHS Proud Audio Time. Hey guys, welcome to PHS Proud Audio Time once again. I'm very excited to share my interview today with Rear Admiral Scott Guyberson, who is now recently retired. If you don't know Rear Admiral Guyberson, um, then <laughs> I don't know where you've been, but he is certainly a living legend for the Public Health Service Commission Corps. And I just wanna provide you with a couple details um, on his background, just a couple minor details, just to let you know where he's coming from and the type of things that he's done. I've actually publicly stated that I think Rear Admiral Guyberson has done more for the Commission Corps as a uniformed service than Surgeon General Thomas Perrin back in World War II. And I actually mean that. I, I wouldn't have said it if I didn't mean it. Um, so just a, a brief history here of Rear Admiral Guyberson and what he's done. And I, I have it written down here so that I don't forget anything because uh, very important to know. So Rear Admiral Guyberson, if you're in the pharmacy world, he's a pharmacist by training. Um, if you no, if you're an IHS and um, you've done the NCPS, the National Clinical Pharmacist Specialist, he's uh, was part of developing the NCPS in pharmacy. He's a pharmacist clinician. He was the senior public health advisor for the Department of Defense in the Pacific Command. He uh, was the chief professional officer for pharmacy and uh, led the report that was submitted to the Surgeon General on advancing pharmacy practice. He traveled all throughout the country, all throughout the world uh, to talk about advancing pharmacy practice. I know when I was in school, this was a big hot topic and it still is. And he was very much behind that, that movement. He was the Commission Corps Headquarters Director, Acting Deputy Surgeon General, and of course the commander of the Ebola response in Liberia. Some of the awards that Rear Admiral Guyberson has been awarded He's received the Department of Defense Meritorious Service Medal. He's the reason, uh, in, in collaboration with others, that the Public Health Service received its, per, its first presidential unit citation from President Obama for the Ebola response. He's received the Distinguished Service Medal for the Public Health Service, which is the highest medal in the Public Health Service. And he was named as one of the top 100 vets in the past 100 years by the Military Officers Association. So uh, these are just some of the high points. Um, he's done so much, and um, I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Rear Admiral Scott Guyberson. Enjoy. Um, so thanks so much, Scott, for joining me today. Um, I will have introduced you um, formally uh, in a recording um, that people can hear a little bit more in depth about what you've done. Um, but for people in PHS or the military that haven't heard of you or, or anybody else, um, how about you just introduce yourself, uh, give, you, give a little brief summary of what you've done and uh, how you've ended up where you're at today. Sure, Shauna. First of all, glad to be here with you and uh, having a little chat, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a cool December night and uh, it's a it's, it, you know, when you think back about on a, on a career, I, I retired at 28 years, about 27 years plus. And uh, it was actually interesting to get the, the request from you just to do this because um, when you have to reflect back on that many years, you forget about half the stuff you did. And, 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 you, ref and you think too about how well it went in the beginning and the challenges you, 
matriculated towards as you get older in, in your career. But um, I started out, um, you know, well, first, Rear Admiral Scott Kyverson retired. Uh, <laughs> it was, it all started, I guess, um, in college when I was in pharmacy school. I uh, had heard about a rotation for the Indian Health Service. Um, prior to that, I, I had, you know, considered serving in uniform. I was particular about the Navy and especially uh, being a Navy SEAL, which, mm. you know, I laugh about now, but I, I still, I, I think in my mind, I carry that personality, you know, a SEAL or something, but. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then um, did a rotation out in Crown Point, New Mexico with the Indian Health Service at a pharmacy. Um, fell in love with the, the practice uh, in the Indian Health Service of Pharmacy uh, with the, the, you know, sort of remote area. Um, the fact that I could help American Indian Alaska Natives and then to be in uniform, which, you know, is sort of our uniform and the khakis the Navy adopted, right? So it's our uniform, but I can say- <laughs> So I wanna, I definitely wanna touch on that, but I, I'll, I'll let you finish your intro, but I definitely wanna circle back to that. Yep. And then quickly, uh, you know, I spent the first, the, the first uh, third of my career doing Indian Health Service, a uh, combination of pharmacy, family practice, got the, you know, sort of that expanded role um, in family medicine. Then uh, through the leadership of the pharmacy realm, um, then I went into some global health, did some work overseas with Pacific Command DOD, then got into leadership, did the uh, CPO for pharmacy for PHS, which was a great gig, and then, and then jumped into the, the real work with uh, some of the real heavy load as an executive with uh, the director of headquarters, deputy surgeon general, and, and you know so forth. Um, finished my career, what I call the sunset tour at CMS uh, as an executive there. And, and retired this February. It's definitely been a long road for you and congrats on that retirement. And now you're president of um, AMI Expeditionary. So what is AMI Expeditionary and how did you get into that? That, that is correct. You know, you, you always think about the network you have and the bridges you, you build during your career. And one of them was at Pacific Command. My, uh, my director at the time, the director of the medical unit was... Uh, Dr. Tom Crabtree, and he uh, was, you know, brilliant plastic surgeon in the Army, Colonel, um, you know, did global health. We did global health together. We traveled all over the Asia Pacific together. He said, stay in touch when I, you know, was done with my tour down in Pacific Command. Uh, he went through the rest of his career, retired, I think, 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. Um, started up with a, a different company, but sort of entrepreneurial um, uh, in the healthcare sort of world, um, private sector. So healthcare solutions. Anyway, uh, he progressed in his uh, private, now new for-profit company. I progressed obviously in the core and he, we always kept in touch. We met again face-to-face -face in Ebola in 2014 in Monrovia, which yeah. is fantastic to see him there. Um, and then he said, hey, when you retire, you know, give me a call, keep in touch. Yeah. Well, we kept in touch throughout and he was always asking. And so when he, when I finally uh, wanted to decide to retire, he, he said, uh, yeah, I'll bring you on and brought me on as an executive, a uh, part of the executive team and for about the first seven months or so. And then uh, a couple months ago, they appointed me as the president. So um, 
you know, I don't know how I went from retirement where I thought I was going to be, you know, scuba diving and golfing to 70, 80 hour weeks now back again. So, um, but, but it's a little different. It's a little different. Yeah. It's a little, little less stressful, no matter what they say in the, in, in my company now, it's very busy, a lot of hours of work, great mission. Um, but, it, but in a way it's, it's, we're a team and we're, you know, there's not that it, the administration looking over your shoulder or, you know, all it's off everybody counting on you to do things. And so, yeah, um, it's, a, it's a good team. It's a little different and um, it's a different stage of your career now, you know? Exactly. Yeah. You don't strike me as the kind of guy that's just going to sit margaritas <laughs> on the beach for the rest of your life. I, I think you're going <laughs> to keep pushing. I say I'm going to, and I want to, but, you know, I, that's a funny story though, Sean, because just the other night I, I had been it was a, a, an extraordinarily busy week and we had, I think I put about 80 to 90 hours in, in the week. And um, seriously, because it was also including travel. And I think it was Sunday night when I started to finally wind down and everything sort of stopped, shut off. I started, I put a football game on probably my wonderful wife who supported me forever is sitting right next to me on the couch. And it took me exactly, <laughs> she said 13 minutes. And I said, I don't even know what to do. I'm kind of bored. <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. so um, yeah, I don't know. She said, retirement's not going to work, honey. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I kind of figured that, but there's gotta be a balance somewhere in there between, you know, full bore, you know, 80 hour weeks to, to uh, just scuba diving and, and golfing. There's, exactly. there's going to be an active retirement lifestyle somewhere in there. Yeah. Maybe with a little bit more time, but yeah, I, I think retirement's a little bit of a, a red herring that, you know, you never really stop the need to feel contributing to something or valued for, for your work. And, you know, most people that do just sit on the beach and sit margaritas end up dying early or are just super unhappy. So I think it yeah, is, it's, yeah. It's purpose, right? It's having purpose. And, and, and it doesn't have to be something, you know, like right now, I, you know, we're still in that for-profit world. You're, you're making a salary and yeah. you're working hard and there's milestones and things, but, but, you know, even when you don't have that, you should have purpose, right? You should be helping people, doing what you need to do, doing what you love to do, staying busy, staying active. Um, throughout my career, I always said, uh, let me think, boy, this is drumming up a quote from long ago. I said, always be dynamic, never idle. And, um, you know, it sort of helped me throughout my career because you say yes to a lot of things and you get super busy and, and you say, why did I say yes to that? But it, but it gives you so many different opportunities and experiences, good or bad. Um, and I don't regret any of them because if I didn't like it, I learned from it. And if I liked it, then, you know, win-win. Yep, exactly. I, and I like that perspective. Um, so I, I think we're going to have a lot to, a lot in common. I think we do have a lot in common. You know, we're both pharmacists. We're both PHS yep. veterans. I was only in for five years. I, I think both of our wives are from New Mexico. Is that true? Is, That's is your correct. Wife from New Mexico? Okay. Yep. I, so, I met her at my first duty station in Gallup, New Mexico. Okay. So I, I have somewhat of an idea of your challenges that you have. So, um, but and where no, is yours so, from? Um, so my wife is from the South Valley of Albuquerque. Oh, sure. She's yeah. uh, speaking of 80 to 90 hour work week. She's a, a general surgeon right now in her residency. So she's. Oh, my. She's having fun with that. So residents get no breaks. Exactly. <laughs> well, congrats um, on that. That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and now we're living in La Crosse, Wisconsin. So just kind of moving all over the place. 
Speaking of which, AMI is in La Crosse, Wisconsin. We we own a lot of the vaccination um, uh, and testing sites in Wisconsin. So. Oh wow, good to know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, just reviewing your, you know, having the luxury to look at your CV um, has just, you know, made me smile honestly, and and a lot of times just say like, hell yes, like thank you. And I don't mean that, you know, um, you're very well known in the public health service, I think, but I think it's well-deserved because of your track record and, and you really walk the walk. I remember when I got into PHS back in, you know, I did some co-steps back 2012. Um, I, I came in as a resident in 2015, but I remember, and I was always big on, I've always been big on public health service history. And that's why I have this thing called BHS Proud now, because I'm obsessed with it, even though I'm not active anymore. But I remember coming across your your speech at the press conference with President Obama. And I know the Ebola thing is kind of the shiny thing and that everybody points at and says, oh, that was so cool, which, I mean, that put public health service on the map historically. And that'll be something we point back at that says, look at, you know, look at what public health service did. But I remember sharing that video of you giving that speech. I, I sent it to my dad right away because, you know, I've, I was always proud of, of being a pharmacy officer, very proud to wear the uniform. So I, I remember that struck me because I was like, this guy is like, this is what I think PHS uh, should be all the time. And I, I think a lot of us know on the ground, we don't always have what the Monrovia Medical Unit represented for a lot of people, which was more you know, structure, camaraderie, really coming together for uh, a single mission. And I think that can be lacking um, in the Commission Corps a, a lot. But I, I just remember sharing that because I, I was just, you know, I was PHS proud with, with that moment and just like, gosh, like this is what the public health service is about. So that's what I'm about um, with PHS proud. And I, I really want to highlight stories like yours. Obviously, you're a living legend in the public health service. <laughs> and it, it would be, um, I mean, we need to document and, and describe these things. And I think my hope is in some small way, um, maybe we can we can see what has been done by leaders like yourself to see where PHS needs to go, um, because I think it's un- a lot of us know it's underutilized, it's not known, um, and there's just so much more that PHS could be doing. So I just kind of provide that preamble um, to um, just again very grateful that to be able to speak with you and I just respect a lot of what you've done as a as a um, uniformed service member as an officer so thank you um, well, Sean that that honestly that um, that means a lot uh, more than you know um, you know you get into this world of of work and you forget about the things that matter the most and it's not the accolades it's not the events it's the people you meet and the stories you can tell. And so, um, you know, hearing that story of your experience is, uh, means more to me than, than, you know, the awards you get or the titles you had or whatever. So if you, if you are put in a position to have the opportunity to do, to have an impression on a person like you, then that, that is more reward to me than anything else, right? It's that, I guess you'd call it legacy or lasting impact or yep. inspiration, whatever it is, so. Yep. But thanks for being PHS proud, and and I didn't really know the story behind it, and I I almost suspected it was a either at, at first before I knew who was running it, if it was a retired officer that had a full career or a, mm-hmm. but it's even more impressive the fact that that you know you were in for a shorter amount of time and you still you still felt that so that's 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 awesome. 
Yeah, definitely. In some ways it's a curse because um, <laughs> in some ways PHS grab being, you know, it's just uh, something that I'm very passionate about. So, and just spreading the word on. Um, so, you know, you, you gave a nice um, potted intro of your career and I just want to go down memory lane a little bit more and just kind of um, highlight some of your experiences as an, as an officer and highlight how the culture within PHS has changed over time. And I think you have had a lot to do with that. I, you know, I said on the LinkedIn post that you were aware of that. I think you've done more for the, for PHS as a uniform service since Surgeon General Thomas Perrin. I actually mean that. And I think if anybody um, has, can, can see your track record and appreciate, um, again, just the service for the core, um, I think it's a hard debate. So, so you, you mentioned you, so you started, um, you started your, uh, core career in Gallup was it was that a co-step or was that a, your APPE uh, rotation? Yeah, that was just a you know rotation um, it was <laughs> to be honest there was there was it was probably the farthest rotation away geographically from Temple where I went to pharmacy school mm-hmm. and that's and in Pennsylvania right it's in Philadelphia Pennsylvania okay. right so it was the almost east coast to, to the far southwest and um, I think I, you know, mostly stayed on the East Coast in most of my life, you know, family in different states, but mm-hmm. n- not really traveled that far west and, you know, fell in love with the beauty, the landscape, um, just the type of work. But yeah, I started as an uh, uh, extern or not intern, I would just say, within my last year of pharmacy school. Okay. And so at that moment, had you heard about PHS? If not, like what, how did you, you know, know come across it? Uh, I probably heard about it from a recruiter at some point um but it was more about just a rotation where I could do a little bit more progressive pharmacy practice and and I was sort of into that um you know I had I was at the University of Scranton for undergrad before I went to pharmacy school and I was in a pre-med and you know I actually wanted to be a physician at first and uh I had a, a, a sort of a event in my life where my father passed away when I was 17, he was 44. And so um, mm. since, since that was a sudden event, it really changed the trajectory in my life completely. And so, um, you know, I needed to recoup. Uh, anyway, decided that I wanted to, um, it, actually back in the, if you could, you can't really even remember, recall back in the day, there was no internet and, you know, uh, yeah. you didn't know too much about a lot of different things. And if I think I knew the full spectrum of, healthcare and, and healthcare professionals, you know, I don't know which way I might've gone, but I might've still stayed as a physician because there's so many things you can do, but For sure. uh, I felt the next best clinical thing I could do aside from being a nurse, which I really didn't want to, didn't want to pursue that was to be a pharmacist. So I uh, went from pre-med uh, Scranton after four years to, to um, pharmacy school. Yep. And then, and then of course, Indian health service. Okay. That's, you know, uh, that's interesting about your father. So I was, um, it just brings up something that I was discussing with some um, new friends of mine. I was in this um, entrepreneur boot camp for veterans, and there's a lot of, you know, military guys in there uh, that have done crazy, crazy things. And um, we talk a lot about in there about adversity, creating strength and prosperity, creating weakness. And I'm just, you know, hearing something like that with your father is like, that, that would be super tough, I would imagine. And then I also also think in that vein, wow, was that something that like that could have just been a huge strength for you having that that tragic event that I I just believe people have those events happen and you can really depending on how you deal with it I mean it can go really bad but 
that can really be a strength for you. Do you feel like that was something that had, has been something for you throughout your career? 100%, John, 100%, 110%. I mean, but I, you know, what it is, it's an, it's, it's an infusion of this incredible emotion and energy and it can go either way, right? So, you know, if I introduced you to some of the freshmen that I was with at the University of Scranton, my first year out of high school, and so my dad passed away in September, so it was my first semester of my freshman year of college. And um, if I introduced you to some of those folks, they would say, well, I thought he would die by the time he was a senior. <laughs> and then meaning me, because I was a little bit, you know, a little bit maverick, and a little bit wild. And mm -hmm. uh, I needed that. That was my coping mechanism, right? Just pretty mischievous. And yep. I was in the dean's office a lot, um, student, the dean of students. And um they probably would never have thought I would have been successful, <laughs> although they saw some, you know, brilliance somewhere in there in the, in the skull. Um, yep. You know, I was too busy causing trouble and doing some things I shouldn't have been doing. But um, yeah, it's the, it, that same energy and and emotion. Then, as it matures and it translates into drive and passion, you know, mm -hmm. in the positive side, and yep. it's it's amazing how close that will teeter back and forth, you know, yep. until you truly mature. And, you know, I was only 17 or 18 at the time. So I was 17 at the time. So, yep. um, yeah, I mean, uh, it, 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 if you use it correctly and funnel it the right way, then it, it can be a huge facilitator to, a, you know, success and energy and things like that. So, yep. yeah, picking yep. up on that is correct. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I can't imagine. So, um, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's been a driver and it's a, it's, it wasn't a, it was a tragic thing, but, but I've used it in every possible way to be positive about, um, you know, if that never happened, maybe I would have never, ever, you know, was able to accomplish what I did. And yep. so exactly. So in a, what was the culture of pharmacy when you were going to, to school? It's Cause like when I was going through uh, 2011, 2015, you know, it was all about, um, medication therapy management, pharmaceutical care, making sure that we're, you know, practicing at the top of our licenses. Um, how was the, what, what was the expectation for the pharmacist when you were going to school? So when did you, when did you go through, Sean? Uh, 20, 2011 to 2015, I was at the University of Minnesota. Okay, great. Yeah, by the way, I, I spoke to them. I think I did one of their, I think I did when I graduated. Or commencement, I think. I did University oh, okay. of Minnesota Duluth commencement. And I also did University of Minnesota commencement, but I can't remember what year it was now. Um, yeah, you spoke at one of my classes in 2012, 20, something like that. That was, I think that right. was a Melendi lecture for. Um, oh, yeah, the Melendi, oh, yeah, Melendi lecture, right. Yeah. Great. Yeah, that was fantastic little tour of lectures all around different things. Yeah. But, but, but let me go back to your question. Um, you know, when I was coming through pharmacy school, um, you had your choice, you, you know, you did did retail pharmacy or you did hospital pharmacy yep. or you could do this unusual crazy thing you know that was from uh, you know more expanded scope pharmaceutical care and it was really I don't know if it was isolated to Indian Health Service but it was certainly widely known as as the most innovative progressive and that was back in well <laughs> 1990 <laughs> so or so you know yep. but anyway um uh <laughs> then when you get into that world the Indian Health Service you realize that even that was 20 years removed from when it really started in the seventies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about pharmacy in the future, in, you know, in, in the next sets of questions, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's amazing. Some of the things I was able to do in the early nineties that 
you know, even to today would be progressive. So, um, you know, in a, in a way we, we take two steps forward, one step back sometimes with pharmacy. And I have a lot to say about pharmacy, but yeah, but in general, um, it was great to be able to get out from, from that sort of rubric of you get inpatient or you get, you know, retail. <laughs> yeah, there's, exactly. there's also, be, you could be a drug salesman, right? <laughs> right. Because oh, that's okay. when they used to actually employ pharmacists to do selling, you know. Oh, uh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Huh? You actually use a pharmacist. Instead. <laughs> yeah. But I, that never took off for me. I probably wasn't good looking enough you know, to be in the pharmaceutical <laughs> sales world back in the day. But um, we'll never know. Uh, I guess. Yeah. So, but anyway, it was, it was, there weren't too many choices. You did, you did sales, you did retail, you did inpatient. And that was, that was pretty much it. I can remember or academia, right. And go back and, and teach. Yeah. So, um, okay. Yeah. So you, so you graduated and then you went straight into the commission core and was it just at that time? So describe a little bit like how you got in. Was it just applying and you were you were good to go and they they put you somewhere? Did you have to choose? How did it work then? Oh, even back then we had trouble onboarding some folks. You know, it takes a long time to get commissioned and um, yeah. uh, maybe not as long as it does now. I I don't quite remember. But what I did was I knew that I wanted to go back out to the southwest, um, and I was waiting for an opening there. And in the meantime, I took a job in Philadelphia at, at the uh, PCOM, Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine Hospital. So I was working inpatient, um, you know, doing TPNs and IVs and stuff like that for hmm. inpatients, some pharmacokinetic calculations. That was the big, <laughs> that was the big clinical thing I was doing. Yeah, gen some gentamicin um, dosing. Yeah, some gentamicin dosing. <laughs> and um, uh, just waiting to get commissioned. And once I got the call that I would get commissioned, I'd be able to go out to Gallup um, for a job. Then I, then I took you know, I jumped on it and had it out there. And that was, that was the beginning of, uh, of the career. So at that time, did you, was there, um, was there Botsy at the time? What type of training did you get as an officer going in? I got, welcome to the commission corps. You're going to be an officer, um, get this uniform, you know, yep. <laughs> I guess I got some handbook of some sort, um, I okay. might have had a phone call because obviously there's no video or anything like that. So yeah. um, I think I had a phone call with headquarters, PCP maybe at the time it was called, um, about what to do. And then you just follow the lead of the people who are already there in, in, in your site, right? So yeah. in Gallup, we had, you know, a number, it was a, it's a big outpatient center. So we had a number of captains who were there, um, you know, Gary Erickson, Bob Parrish, all that the ones that, that most folks don't even remember, but they were my mentors and, and they're mentors because you emulate what they're doing and, you yeah. know, follow the book as best you can. And, and that's that, but, um, you know, you didn't really, you didn't really feel the camaraderie of uniform service. You just sort of were in uniform you now. Mm -hmm. so. so that brings up the next question, because I know when I got in, in 2015, I remember people, I was at the Albuquerque IGES, and I remember they would be talking about like, oh yeah, just a couple of years ago, we only had to wear the uniform on Wednesdays. So was that the situation when you got in or what was this, what was the uniform yes, situation? Then yes and no. So yes, it was, but you can wear it more often, right? So, you know, sometimes we chose to wear it every day of the week and people thought we were crazy, right? Yeah. So, you know, but if you were into that and you liked the uniform, which we did, and we were into the service and stuff, you know, you'd do it. Um, but you didn't, but it was unusual because you didn't feel, you didn't understand yeah. really what it meant to, and 
you know, I was just as ignorant as the next person coming in and not really understanding what it was like. You don't go to boot camp. You don't go to, you yeah. know, OCS, uh, officer candidate school. So you, yeah. you get thrown in and then, and then you get out in this situation where you, like I said, you, you follow the lead. So, um, it, it's hard to have original thoughts sometimes about it because you don't understand it. And until you mature to that point where you do understand it, you make just better decisions. Right. So, yeah. um, yeah, it was uh, it was the Wednesday wear, and it's embarrassing to think about that, but it was yeah. like that. It's the way it was, right? It's like exactly, you know, yeah. So that's I it. think, yeah, th those things they're you know an unfortunate, unfortunate you know wart or blemish, but in some ways, you know, I think it's important just to acknowledge those things and say, you know, this is how it was, and and I think it's better to talk about it because then you can understand. Because like young guys like me coming in you know, you were at my OBC 81 and it's like, you're all, and I loved it. Like, cause again, you, you understand the power of the uniform, the purpose behind it. Um, and then when you get out in the field and then you see older guys, like not wearing it correctly, or, you know, just looking disheveled and, you know, you really have a, an eye for those things. At least I did. Um, I think it's helpful to understand, like they didn't, they didn't get OBC for two weeks. They didn't, um, you know, I think 2006 was when it was mandated uh, you know, where it was, uh, uh, OBC started, I think. So, so anyway, I think it's helpful just to understand. So you don't like get too pissed off at people. <laughs> o OBC and, and the evolution of that to the point where it was the full, you know, full two week kind of a thing and was probably one of the biggest transformative things that PHS ever did. And, and, um, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't at the very beginning of it, but I came in at about OBC 30, and went from OBC 30 to OBC 110 or something like that. I can't remember, but um, yeah. I mean, and then I, before me, you know, I don't know if you remember Captain Beck, Captain Dan Beck, yep. who, who was yeah, heavy player in headquarters, but also in, in he was at headquarters for forever and uh, in all different roles um, under John Babb when, when it was, when it was uh, the Commission Corps Readiness Force, CCRF before 9-11 you know in the 19 late 1990s and so um yeah anyway that that evolution of the core from 9-11 forward is really um really um like i said transformative and transformational so absolutely yeah very critical um and again it's not it's not even that long ago so um, <laughs> yeah, for me it feels like it was four decades ago but uh yeah um, but but i remember the feelings and the um it's very, uh, all those senses of, you know, even are palpable, right? Just the smells, the, the, the setting, the, the people, the emotion, all those things are so, um, you know, close, close to me right now. I, I, mm -hmm. it's hard because I haven't really talked about it much, um, since that point in time, you know, and, and it's, this is a great, I was really looking forward to this because of that, you know, to, to dig a little bit deeper and, remember some of those things that I, you don't get the chance to, to do. Yep. Good. That, I'm glad to hear that. It makes me feel good. Um, so, you know, while we're on the topic of uniforms, so I, I know you said before that, so PHS had the khakis before the Navy. Uh, I, I read an article when I was doing some research last night and I, I had you quoted uh, saying the same thing. So, so what's the history <laughs> and story with the khakis, because I, I have a bunch of Navy buddies that I, I'm sure if I told them this, they would, you know, pull their hair out and wouldn't believe it. Oh, so. I might, I might not get this history exactly right, but you know, okay. part of that sort of uh, quarantine 
uh, time frame when we were, you know, quarantining officers and such and, and, yep. and communicable disease at the ports when we were, you know, really taking care of, of uh, seamen and sailors coming in mm -hmm. uh, maritime, you know, era. Um, yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming that was one of our first, if not the first sort of uniform we had was the all khaki uniform and, and, and how and why the Navy adopted it. I'm not too sure of that history, but somebody will know that one. But yeah, it's always good to rub it in. I mean, we get <laughs> much like the Air Force, we get harassed sometimes as a uniform service. <laughs> and, yeah. and uh, you know, we're not the smallest anymore by far. And they, NOAA and I don't know if the Space Force is a part of that now it allowed to, to be harassed with us too, because it's a little bit smaller. But, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're, we're, especially in the last 15 years, but I'd say 20 years, um, a very, very well-known, um, less secret service um, for what we can do and what we have done um, since 9-11. So, you know, that that is uh, probably the most prideful thing we should have as a service to, to know that. As a matter of fact, I just, hmm. <clears throat> this is, I'm kind of tangentially speaking here because we're going all over the board, but um mm -hmm. Uh, I get to spend a lot of time now with retired uh, one stars, two stars, three stars, even sometimes of all the services. And um, I often, you know, when, when I introduce myself and, and what type of a two star or what, what my service was, and they say, oh, man, and this is just last Monday, I think, uh, two star um, Air Force, at, former Air Force Admiral retired, um, said, boy, if there was ever doubt of what you guys were capable of, you certainly have proven yourselves in the last decade. And he knew about Ebola and he knew about now, of course, you know, a lot to do with COVID, but SARS and all the different things that we've been involved with. And, um, and then this is from a, you know, line side, not a medical guy, you know, yeah. line side, two-star air force, uh, general. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that certainly, warmed my heart there for a little bit and I said well thanks you know and um uh that's what you want to hear right it wasn't you know when I started in the early you know or the 90s early 90s um you know you would not get that same story from a general or an admiral mm. and one of the, the armed forces right so yeah really really proud over those two decades for that yeah no that's really good to hear um and I'm when I always talk about the service that I was a part of, you know, I always say, you know, I was part of this lesser known service. Most people haven't heard about it. And then, but I, you know, there are some military guys that will say, Oh no, no, I, I know about guys. you guys. And, um, and, and yeah, it's just always like, Oh, you know, it makes you feel really good and, um, you know, respected and, um, val again, valued. So, um, well, I mean, think about all the public health issues that have happened in the last two decades. I mean, maybe it's because, because they've always existed, but because of of the, the the freeway of communication now, everybody knows everything everywhere. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's it's allowed us to be more visible, and because so many more issues are public health related, whether it's disaster, public health like post hurricane, post flood, or whether it's infectious disease, communicable disease, um, yeah. you, you know, whether it's research, you know, we're all over, and we can be all over, small but mighty, right? Um, yeah. So I always think we're like. The, the movie 300 you know <laughs> you know fighting against the thousands and millions of people and there's 300 of them um, exactly uh, yep. but but mighty right uh, lots we carry a, a big stick when it comes to expertise and and I agree. and you know just the the depth and breadth of 
public health and medical expertise. Exactly. And and we get that stuff from places like IHS that, again, are forgotten government agencies. Nobody thinks about American Indians and Alaska Natives in the United States, um, unfortunately. So I think those going through the trenches in the dirt, like that, again, just um, adversity. And I think and people we'll think, see that. Think about how the Indian Health Service catapulted the profession over the last four decades, five decades. Um, pharmacy would not be where it's at if it wasn't for the Indian Health Service. I mean, you know, even even people that wrote textbooks that you studied from that that you know called the things whatever they called them that, that coined the phrase pharmaceutical care at all prior to all that was Indian Health Service. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, I can't remember, but um, you know, some of the main authors of of some of those uh, pharmacotherapeutics books that we all had forever in pharmacy school. Yeah were written by former one of them former IHS pharmacists so um yeah it's uh and they were core, they were core pharmacists weren't they uh wasn't um yep, was Dick church one of them that started the oh yeah Dick church but even before the hepler and strand hepler and strand strand wrote one of the, the books and I, I don't know if hepler and strand coined pharmaceutical care but it was based off of the work of the IHS five standards of pharmacy practice which um yep. you know have have been the gold standard from the 70s even before then, 50s, 60s. So yeah, um, yeah that, that's when you really know your true history when you think about an entire healthcare professional in the United States was driven by this little known government entity called the Indian Health Service. Fascinating. I think that's a good segue to, to describe your impact on clinical pharmacy through IHS. So you started with IHS in 1993. You were there for 10 years before you... Um, transferred. And so if you're an IHS, you know about something called NCPS, which is, uh, forgive me if I get it wrong, National Certification Certified Pharmacotherapy yeah. Specialist? National Clinical Pharmacy Specialist. Okay. Yep. So so you were part of, of the group that started that. So what's the story behind NCPS and, and how did you get involved with that? Yeah. Well, um, always learning from your mentors. You know, we were never the first. The first was IHS pharmacy practitioners, PPs, right, in the 70s. Hmm. And um, that was the Dick Churches of the world, right? And even prior to him, and some of those, some of his folks that he worked with, um, uh, you know, and forgetting some of their names at the moment, but um, they were the originals, right? They were the <laughs> the originals, the the OGs. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, and there was not many of them, right? But but they were able to, to do diagnostics and, you know, the, the, the just about full, you know, expanded scope, even beyond probably what you'd think is expanded scope, because you're doing it in rural areas where there's not a lot of care at all. So it's either that care or, or you know, really no choices. So yep. it worked perfectly, you know, and it was, it was just, it was the elegance of expanding the scope of a person that could do it, that was highly trained to do it. And, um, you know, they took a little extra training and they were able to do it. And so that was an offshoot of that. It kind of died a little bit in the 80s and we wanted to reinvigorate it in the 90s and moving forward. And um, so a group of us out in Albuquerque, we met in Albuquerque, I believe. And we had some folks from uh, Santa Fe and from New Mexico, other places in New Mexico and Phoenix. And uh, I think five or six of us got together um, and sort of put this concept together to reinvigorate with a little bit more of the of the standards of the time in the 90s. And I can't remember exactly what made us 
formulated that way, but yep. it was for folks that wanted to get credentialed and privileged within the Indian Health Service to practice in Indian Health Service facilities only, because that's how we could credential it a little bit easier without you know any legal issues, and expand our scope. Um, mm -hmm. And then then we you know that was the '90s, but we also took it to the next level by licensure in New Mexico, the state of New Mexico, and only in New Mexico, but a uh, uh, licensed pharmacist clinician, which was really like more like a PA ish because you 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 know I was able to practice in family medicine so I did that for five years and that was completely outside the pharmacy um, realm um, I, I was basically mid-level right so I was privileged mm -hmm. in not chronic disease management meaning therapy but I would write the prescriptions just like a primary care provider and I would see the patient whole head to toe could do diagnostics you know could do laboratory can do anything it was just an, another healthcare provider in family medicine um, it's just that my base, my base um, discipline was pharmacy instead of nursing or a PA, right? So, yeah. and I remember, I remember working with the chief of family medicine in, in Gallup, and, and she told me, you know, I, I see nurses that go from nursing to to you know BSN to to nurse practitioners, and then I see now this first cohort of pharmacists that went back to school with at the University of New Mexico with nurse practitioner, you know, curriculum and came out as this pharmacist clinician and she said that was very easy to work with them because it's it's pretty easy to teach um a clinical person that you know uh, physical assessment and diagnostic because it honestly doesn't change that much if you think about it right yeah, um, yeah. doing physical assessment in the 1920s is pretty much like physical assessment in the 2010 right so yeah um and diagnostics doesn't change that much some of the level you know if you get guidelines like JNC six or seven or eight, whatever. And it, it, it's different, but what changes the most and what's the most dynamic is the pharmaceuticals and the, and the therapy. So having that base first makes it very easy to teach and become clinical to, mm. to, to a care provider. Anyway, I, I distinctly remember her telling me that a lot. And so, mm. and as, as of right now, there's a current um, pharmacist uh, out there and still in Gallup since probably to, you know, probably even maybe before 2000, maybe 1997 or eight, he came in and um, he's still a clinician out there in family medicine, doesn't go in the pharmacy at all. And he's been doing it for a couple decades. So. Um, oh, wow. Is that yeah. Ray Brand? Nope. Nate Yale. Okay. I haven't, I haven't met him. Okay. Captain, well, he was with me the whole time we were there and then he, I left and he stayed. And every time I go visit, I said, I should have stayed. <laughs> so. <laughs> He goes, come on, Scott. He goes, you should have stayed. You get to get to see patients every day. You don't have to work eighty hours. And he goes, he doesn't get the he doesn't have any in, inpatient uh, responsibility. So he's just yep. a sort of a fully privileged. And boy, he's brilliant. I mean, he knows everything there is to know about chronic disease and and disease yep. management. And um, that's what it mostly is, right? You make the diagnosis pretty much once, and then you can re-diagnose or, or you know reassess and then make a new diagnosis. But for the most part, it's yep. chronic chronic disease management, right? Unless you're taking yep. care of trauma or something. So, yeah. So did you, so for the pharmacist clinician licensure, was that already in place or were you um, part Barely. of that initial? It, it started in the state, but they, they hadn't had, and, and the reason it started was because a former IHS pharmacist was on the board at the state board of New Mexico. Hmm. Um, and she, you know, got it started with their board. And then the first two Indian health service pharmacists to do the pharmacist clinician licensure 
were myself and Randy Burden. Randy Burden was from Santa Fe. He was a cardiovascular specialist in, in Santa Fe. And um, I have a uh, license number like 000018 okay, of, the, yeah. of, the, of the pharmacist clinician licensure. Yep. Um, but uh, I think 02 of, of IHS because 01 was Randy. So, um, wow. Yeah, okay. it is, it's a good history. It makes me sound really old, but, um, you know, but once again, recognizing we were the, you know, we were preceded by, by the Eternals, the, the, the OGs, the yeah. ones in the 70s were doing pharmacy practitioner work, um, but there was no state licensure at the time. Interesting. So, yeah, I did the pharmacist clinician course. I did, you know, I got my license. Um, I never, I didn't practice to the extent that you did. Um, and, you know, kind of got to see the the challenges with implementing that, even in, in an IHS, I think there was some confusion as to, okay, is the PHC going to, the pharmacist clinician, are, the, are they seeing patients only? Are they, you know, being a PA or NP, or are they also helping with other pharmacy related things, medication requests, med rec, stuff like that. So there was sometimes some um, confusion or misunderstanding on that role. Um, but so it's a very advanced role, I'm sure I didn't know about it, honestly, the New Mexico clinician coming up at, at the University of Minnesota, I think maybe we were too full of ourselves that we didn't want to listen to anybody else and what they were doing. But, um, but when I went to New Mexico, I was like, wow, this is really cool. There's a pharmacist clinician. I, this is what I'm all about. I, I ended up changing kind of my, my perception on what a pharmacist's strengths or what I felt um, best at. But um, so it's been a long time, you know, with the pharmacist clinician in place, it seems from my perspective to have stagnated yeah um yeah. but so i'm just curious like there's a lot of stuff well, going on with uh sorry uh with the pharmacy pr profession um changing so i'm just curious like from your perspective like where do we need to go um should it be pharmacist clinician like how do you see because you've you've done so much in pharmacy like i, I gotta know i mean that's a tough call so so we were trying to push the boundaries of pharmacy. We weren't trying to replace the pharmacist. As a matter of fact, okay. at the time, given the given the years of schooling you have to go through to be, you know, now a PharmD, and given the the training that you could have while in school, um, we, we absolutely should be able to do so much more than we do now. Um, you know, pharmacy, and I don't mean this in any derogatory manner, but sort of has to move at a glacial pace because we're smaller. Uh, we don't have the advocacy or lobbying power that physicians or nurses do. And so although we have the training, uh, obviously we have the talent in the, in the profession, we were unable to really, you know, move forward like we should have. And if you think about it, this is a fascinating, you know, sort of analogy when you think about for decades, we, we argued the fact outside of IHS, because in IHS it was being done, but we go through five, six years of schooling, sometimes more if you had an undergraduate degree and then you went to pharmacy school, seven years, eight years. Yep. And we had to argue if we could give an immunization. Okay. Nobody, oh, you guys can't do it. First of all, LPNs were doing it, right? Um, paramedics, EMTs, whatever, giving shots, doing all kinds of stuff. And a pharmacist after that many years of schooling couldn't do it because obviously we can't lobby correctly and we don't have enough um, it, it has nothing to do with skills, talent, education, curriculum, whatever, although we weren't teaching it necessarily up in every place in pharmacy, but so, so think this through now. So fast forward to COVID, um, within a split second of an emergency, you got pharmacy techs giving immunizations without a question, right? 
And, and so all that stuff we argued was a given that, oh, of course, you know, pharmacists give immunizations. Not only do we give them, but if it weren't for us, the COVID response would never be where it was or where it is now. And so, you know, um, so it just goes to show you some of the archaic thinking back 20, 30 years from now. It should have, it could have and should have been fast forwarded to mm. this point. And, and it's not just with the immunizations. That was just one example. But think about this. Sure. What made the, the what, what was the value that the pharmacists brought to the table with COVID vaccinations and testing? It was the fact that they were everywhere and they were highly trained and they mm. could yeah. access to the public, access to healthcare. Yeah. Same concept. We're archaic in our thinking that we can't do chronic disease management or medication therapy management or whatever you want to call it. The fact is, is that people go see their doctor once a month, once a year or once a quarter, whatever, sometimes they miss appointments, doesn't matter. They always come to the pharmacy for their medication, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we hope they do, but most of them do, right? So they go see, you know, a pharmacist every 30 days, they go see their physician once or twice a year, you know, if they're just chronically damaged. Um, that access is undervalued, underutilized. It's archaic to think that we can't do the jobs that, you know, it doesn't take death across everywhere to say, oh, um, oh yeah, let's just utilize the pharmacists because they're everywhere. Same argument for public health in general or healthcare in general or yeah. preventive health. You know, the, the US healthcare system costs, you know, per capita so much money and the outcomes, eh, they're sort of okay compared to globally. They're not good compared to how much money we put into it. It's not good at all. Yep. Think about if we did preventive health or, or any kind of things like that out of the pharmacy worldwide or uh, US wide. So, yep. um, yeah, it's where do I think pharmacy needs to go? Well, I mean, you know, I probably should have done a follow up to the Surgeon General's report five years after we did it yep. because we really had a lot of momentum. You know, when I think I started it, it and it was, um, there was four states that I think four Medicaid programs that recognize pharmacists as providers. Mm -hmm. Four years later, there was 32 states that recognized pharmacists as providers. So, I mean, that's just a, that was another one of those things that, um, you know, I wish I had more time in one day to do both jobs that I could do. I, at the time, I you know, sort of matriculated up to the DSG acting role and, yep. and was obviously too busy with all these other things in Ebola, but 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 that was the time when you know pharmacy we were right on the cusp of of really blowing it up and we had a lot of support we had a lot of support from from other professions um, mm -hmm. as part of the Surgeon General's that report and, and I know it was in some of the questions that preempted with um, we had letters of support from major organizations even I even had a draft which I still have in my folder a draft. Um, support letter from the AMA. Um, uh, and it was, a, unfortunately, she supported us and she was going to write this, this letter that we could send to Congress with the other letters to say, pharmacists should be you know, federally recognized providers. And uh, that was the big hurdle the AMA at the time, right? And, hmm. and, and then her time was up as, as the lead of AMA and the replacement yeah. happened to be a little bit more um, old school. Yep. It's the most diplomatic way to put it, right? Yeah. So we regressed after that with AMA's relationship. And then I was not the CPO anymore and it was on and on. So yep. um, yeah, it's it's an interesting history. Yeah, it's all all timing in some ways. Um, I, so, so that was, I mean, that was huge. Um, again, when I was in pharmacy school, this was all, all the rave, so to speak, the um, Surgeon General, the report to the Surgeon General on advancing pharmacy practice 
Um, somebody's calling me, so I'm just going to decline that. Um, so, you know, it's a huge deal. You're going around the entire country internationally uh, speaking about this. And so, um, you know, I was kind of thinking and preparing for this, what you noticed across the country, how pharmacists are as, as a personality or just as a, as a group. Um, mm -hmm. You know, schools can be different and, you know, obviously their rankings and stuff and um, uh, culturally and stuff like that. But what did you notice about the different or the, the similarities, excuse me, in how we really are as a profession? And, and um, you know, did anything? Great about? question. Yeah. Yeah, great question. I'll give you two through two lenses. One, as the you know CPO when I was traveling around doing all the public speaking and and sort of advocating for the for the the change in pharmacy in the profession, that was one lens. The other lens is as as the um, I think director of headquarters slash BSG at one point, um, mm -hmm. having the ability and I'll give you that one too of oversight of all the boards that we'd have to do for promotion. Right, so. You know, PHS has you know, 12 disciplines per se. Um, every board or every group, you know, pharmacists, nurses, physicians, therapists, they all go in their board and their board is made up of all their peers, except that the, the DSG or the acting DSG can sit in on all those boards and chair the board, right? So, okay. um, but then you get to see the personalities and the way they, it's a very distinct, you know, difference in between how they run their boards and how they, um, their behavior in the boards according to mostly like their professional, you know, way to do it, you know? So, yep. and I won't comment about the other professions, <laughs> but, but pharmacists um, uh, have a lot of, you know, rigor behind what they do. They, they like the organization. They like the um, data inputs. They have to cover themselves. You know, they're very careful mm -hmm. about CYA, you know? Yeah. So they, they, do all the numbers and they get all the things and, you know, they'll argue about two decimal places and, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a tough battle to get promoted when everybody's checked the boxes. They've all, they, they're a very passionate group to do that. Right. So yep. that the core pharmacist is that driven, passionate, meticulous. Um, uh, and I won't say any of our negatives, but that's our positives, right? <laughs> that's all yep. of our, you know, that, that real, they, they, they support one another, which is another great thing. Huge, huge, huge difference. And, and I'll give the, the pharmacy pharmacists and the core props because we do, we, we always say we're the best category, but, you know, we support each other to no end and, and you don't always see that amongst the other categories, right? And so, um, you know, it, it, it's always the esprit de corps comes a lot from our category, right? Yeah. So, um, and the, going outside that, the lens of the CPO traveling across the country, private sector pharmacy, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, it's, it's similar. Pharmacists definitely have a lot of passion. They're meticulous. I would say then you get into the, the a little bit more, um, almost too humble. Okay, so they, they, they don't have the confidence or maybe it's the training that doesn't give them the confidence to be, hey, look, when you graduate as a physician or a PA, a nurse practitioner, a provider, you have a certain aura about you that I'm capable, I'm doing this, this is my scope. Because pharmacists don't have that defined scope, and we're always trying to like gain that respect from other people. You come in sometimes too humble, almost to the profession, right? And and you can't. It's hard to advocate for yourself sometimes. It's good to be humble. It's it's a very we're we're taught in pharmacy school the characteristics that you need to become a good leader. You're collaborative. You have humility. You communicate well. 
um, you're a diplomat because you have to convince the physician that it was their idea to change it, right? So you have to exactly. do that. Um, all those kinds of traits make you a phenomenal, you know, have, give you the ability to be a great leader. Right? I don't know if you take that up on that, but um, yep. I always used to have every OBC, I would take the pharmacist aside and I hope I didn't hear, but I, I try to get the pharmacist together afterwards and say, you know, um, and this isn't about pharmacy, but but you asked about the pharmacies specifically. And, and I say in the, in the real world, you fall into a sort of healthcare model where the physician is sort of the decision maker in most cases, most situations. But here in the core, you're an officer and you have great leadership skills. So you should utilize them. And, and you're not in this rubric where you have to listen to, you know, a specific discipline or multidisciplinary. And so you need to lead, you know, and so. Yeah always something that they appreciated and, and moving forward. Anyway, so that's where pharmacy is. And that's the two, that's the two sort of things I saw that what, what held us back a little bit moving forward as a profession, that humility, and that's not a bad thing, but yeah. um, did, it did make us move at a little slower pace than others. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you're definitely, I think you come off as a very uh, humble person. Um, and again, um, assuming I come off as that, Sean, but I'm not yeah. really, right? I'm very outspoken. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've seen you in that situation again. Um, so, yeah, it's a double-edged sword, so to speak, there. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so I kind of want to bring it back. So you, this was kind of like your, when you went to IHS, you really were um, developing your pharmacy skills. You were um, spearheading a lot of these efforts to make, um, to have pharmacists um, be providers and then you also, that led eventually again to this very important report when you were the chief uh, pharmacy officer. But before that, yeah. and this is kind of what you, uh, to your point of what you're just talking about in that um, kind of getting outside of just the pharmacist identity, you then did what I think a lot of people don't do. Um, you were at IHS for 10 or so years, and then you went with Pacific Command and and the Department of Defense. And again, this is starting to, for me, starting to see like, oh, wow, like, okay, so here's an officer that is really embracing what it means to move around to, to go, to go where you're needed, take opportunities that come up. It really hurt me when I would see pharmacists just stay in one spot and then, and they, they would be expecting to get 05 or they would be, have a sense of entitlement in some ways of they should be getting a certain type of promotion when again compared to somebody like you um they haven't met that level of of officership but this is just one step in that direction from my vantage point because now you're going with the armed forces so how did how did that opportunity arise and, and why did you decide to because this is like a huge catapult in, from my perspective for you so how did that come up and why did you choose to go that route yeah, greatest move I ever made in my career. I mean, honestly, that was the change. That was the um, game changer for me um, to to jump outside that box, right, and to to see outside what it was like. Um, obviously, loved the uniform. You know, passionate about the service. Wanted to, you know, probably wanted to be with DOD at some point or transfer in or you know, mm -hmm. in service transfer. But um, I'll tell you how it happened. Really unusual. And I said, you never, you, you all, the, the network you have is so powerful. Um, I talked about Dr. Crabtree, Tom Crabtree, my, my um, colleague, he got me into AMI um, and I met at Pacific Command, but mm -hmm. to get into Pacific Command. So I did anthrax response in uh, at 10, 11, 
2001, right? Not 9-11, 10-11. Okay. It was with John Babb, Admiral Babb at the time. I was probably a 04, I think. I was an 04. And uh, went to New York City, uh, Morgan Station Post Office, um, anthrax, postal workers, crazy. It was insane. There was more stress about anthrax than there was about 9-11 after. If, if you actually look at documentaries and it was more stressful because it was the unknown, right? What's next? Smallpox, anthrax, bioterrorism, all that stuff. Mm. Crazy time. Um, so I guess I did pretty good with Admiral Babb. I was on his team. He was the lead. Um, it was a pretty sensitive situation. I worked with the postal workers and some other of my colleagues now who went on to do some great things. And Rob Tosato, I remember, Captain Tosato, Admiral. Mm -hmm. um, uh, anyway, uh, worked it. After that, the, the Surgeon General Carmona, uh, came in and and uh, he asked each of his admirals, "Hey, give me the names of a couple people. Um, I'm looking for uh, a, a, a top flight person to go out to Pacific Command and represent the Corps at the Armed Forces." And we didn't really have stuff like that before, right? So yeah, we had a PHS officer out there, uh, Captain Kathleen Downs at the time, and she was doing a great job at Pacific Command. And they wanted to, to I think she was heading out for some, another uh, tour, and they wanted back. So, so I had an interview. Uh, with Admiral Carmona and I guess a few other folks had interviews, whoever other, the other admirals recommended, multidisciplinary, obviously. And I went from the chief pharmacist of, of Duluth, Minnesota to a senior public health advisor at Pacific Command. And I thought, holy cow. I remember now, think about it, Northern Minnesota, Duluth, yep. Yep. zero degrees for the entire month of January, right? And, and I came home to my, my wife and I said, Lynette, um, you know, what do you think about going to Hawaii? She's like, oh my goodness. So we had just had my son. So my son was born on Veterans Day, 11-11-01. So oh, there was 9-11, 10-11, and then 11-11 when he was born. And so we, we took him, picked up, and took off uh, the next summer. So we were out wow. in uh, Pacific Man in Hawaii, and um, it was the start of a, a unique and different career. To say the least. So what was your experience like with the military? And you were with you were greenside, right? Like you, you were with the Marines and the army. Yeah. Mainly, oh, a, mainly okay. army, but it was, a, it was, um, we were at camp Smith in, in Pacific command. And it was sort of the, the medical side and, and disaster response, humanitarian assistance. They had a, a, a direct report organization called the center of excellence for disaster management and humanitarian assistance. And, uh, uh, Colonel Crabtree at the time, or I think he's probably like Colonel at the time is, uh, the medical director and he had his staff and I was on his team and um and uh well I loved it I mean obviously I had I had some amazing people around me I had he he was like I said a, a such a highly regarded plastic surgeon worked operation smile I had uh, a former flight surgeon for Air Force One who was my other colleague uh, uh Air Force major at the time Major Zodu um we all became good friends still good friends um and, and um, you know, just being able to travel with them and learn the, their, it gives you that esprit de corps feeling a lot differently than ours. And I think that probably, you know, educated me to the point where, you know, I said, you know, if I'm in a leadership role, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the way mm. think and feel and, and act and, you know, if I can. And so that was the start of it. And um, we got to travel around and do some good things for HIV AIDS, we did the, the, the PEPFAR program, President's Emergency Plan for HIV AIDS, and it got me into another realm of, of global health. Yep. Uh, did, finished my MPH while I was out there, University of Massachusetts. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, 
going to school, traveling around, um, just a, a dynamic time, you know, to, to learn, to, to develop further leadership skills. And I, I remember uh, uh, Dr. Crabtree had to get deployed to Iraq. I think it was Iraq at the time. And um, he said, you know, Scott, you gotta help me out here. Um, I'm heading over there and you could just be acting, you know, lead to be the team lead kind of thing. So yeah, so I'd go around and all over the place with, with the team. And, and uh, he came back and he said, hey, doing a great job, keep doing it. So, you know, he had a million things to do. He, he was yep. doing surgeries and he's deploying into war and then he's trying to be the director. And so, you know, I started to pick up that leadership role leading leading in the DOD too. So it was, it was, you know, learning a different way to do things. Absolutely. I could only imagine that was critical for your ideas and um, change that you brought to Commission Corps headquarters, uh, which I, I want to talk about. Um, before I do, I'm just curious, because again, I, I just see this story that seems mm -hmm. obvious what, as we're going through it. And then again, looking at your CV, but did you get into HIV and AIDS in Gallup or New Mexico, or did, was that just something that you got into in Pacific Zero. needed it? Honestly, I said, okay. okay, now I'm about to do global health and I'm about to do HIV and it has nothing to do with pharmacy. So, you know, th this is a part of throwing yourself into that zone of, of you know, discomfort. Yeah. Um, when, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not pushing yourself, you know, that saying or whatever, there's many yeah. variations of that saying. And every three years, I pretty much felt uncomfortable in my career. <laughs> and I've done it over and over and over again. And you'd think at some point, I think maybe now when I retire, I feel differently. I, I feel, oh, okay, it's just another uncomfort, you know, discomfort, uh, you know, uh, and that's yeah. fine. That's how I grow. And, and that's, it's re, it is difficult and challenging um, as a junior officer to, to throw yourself into something you're completely, you know, out of your league in your mind, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, and then you overcome and you, you learn like the matrix, you know, I always felt like I plugged myself in the back of the head and absorb people don't even know the matrix, except now the new matrix is coming out. Yeah. But, uh, I love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. You plug yourself in and you absorb as much as you can possibly absorb and, and, and then adapt, you know? So, yeah, that's what I tried to do. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. I, I, I want to ask more questions about that, but I, I kind of want to get to some of the other stuff too. So after you, 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 you brought me on board here, Sean, so I could talk for a long time if you want. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm just curious. Cause again, I think as a PHS officer, you're, it, it does take some guts to put yourself out there, even just like walking around in the uniform, like people are going to be like, Oh, like, what are you? Um, that's one thing. Like you're maybe at the grocery store or something. Now, if you go on a base or you're with the military, I feel like you really need to know your stuff and know how to act right. So um, I'm just curious, are there any stories or lessons that you learned where you're like, wow, like I, I you know, they really showed me or like I learned like a really good lesson by, <laughs> I don't know, maybe if you want to share like an embarrassing story or um, something that you learned about officership and just, you know, how to be an officer with others. Well, you know, it is amazing the one thing that I actually maybe had some embarrassing moments, but I really, I was trying to be squared away as possible. I think for me, um, the amount of respect that you get is just, it's overwhelming and, and, and in a good way. I mean, it's just, it's, it's people who, it's almost like a dog, right? It's, you know, 
they, they say, you know, your dog is loves you unconditionally. Mm-hmm. Um, the military by rank has, it's almost forced to respect you unconditionally. And, you know, I've never felt like I didn't want to earn somebody's trust or respect, but you, you, you know, by rank, you get it, even though you didn't earn it sometimes. Yeah. And it always, I always felt uncomfortable with that. Right. So, you know, I tried to really be squared away and be that presence and be that officer, not because, you know, I was trying to, it wasn't the ego part. It was the presence because if I'm going to command their respect, you know, and earn their respect, um, um, they, they're going to give it to you one way or the other, whether they believe that they, you know, want to do it or not, they sort of have to by protocol. And that's kind of the the same thing that I took into uh, becoming a flag officer. I mean, it's the most, it's the most visible rank. Um, uh, You know, that's one of those positions that some people, you know, look at it in a way it's like just another promotion. It's a, it's a great promotion, but, but I looked at it like you have to have a completely different presence and a completely different respect for that rank because it's not just a promotion. It's not just an admiral in the U S public health service. It's an admiral across all the services and everybody respects you. The people who are E nines that fought in war after war after war and, yeah. and earned the, res- the backbone of the, of the U S military. And they have to salute you at will because, because, because of protocol and it's, yeah. it's humbling. It's yeah. so humbling beyond belief. And so yeah. when they do that, I want to, I want to be sure that I did everything possible to be the leader that they expect me to be. And so this is one of the issues I've had with, with, and with mission corps admirals to say, you know, you don't realize what that rank means and you have to make sure that you have that presence and have that confidence, not ego, just confidence, because that's what they expect from you. You know, it's not about ego. It's about what they expect from you as a leader. And so, um, you know, you're an admiral or general in the the armed forces, you've earned it, I'm sure. And so we want to show that we've earned it too. And, and you have to, and you have to be that presence. So, I mean, I think maybe I didn't learn that all of us at the command, but it was certainly the start of it and the, and the um, camaraderie piece, which was, you know, very important. Yes. Yeah. Critical. I'm, I'm shaking my head here uh, or nodding in agreement because I, I um, obviously haven't been in the positions you have been, but I have felt a sense of that where take that very seriously. Um, Cause again, yeah. there are people, like you said, to the E9s that are that, like, these guys have been like crazy situations and for them to yeah. salute you is uh, very humbling. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I take that very seriously. I always said uh, like when people would talk about having to wear the uniform, <laughs> I, I, that, that always pissed me off. And then I, you know, I would always say we get to like, you get to wear that. Like it's a privilege without it's a privilege. Doubt. Yeah. It's a every time every time and i think i probably said that at 100 obcs well 70 obcs you know the, the privilege to strap that on every morning and yep. see that rank and to to just know that you represent everybody in uniform your yep. brothers in uniform you know so um uh yeah i don't know how you can and i miss it i mean, i gotta tell you i mean the civilian tie thing is just uh, not doing it for me but i love <laughs> the um <laughs> And, and, and it's so confusing because you have to actually pick out outfits every day, you know, it's exactly, it's, That's not, what I love. The yep. it's not the same outfit. So exactly. And my, and my wife has said, you're like a third grader. I have to pick out your outfit for you the night before. So yep. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you there. It's, it makes things easier. 
Um, so yeah, no, this is really, uh, really good stuff. So, so you, you were, was your assignment at DOD, um, was that a short-term assignment? Like you knew it was only going to be such and such years and then you'd have to go somewhere else or how did that now, transition now, work? It was really confusing because we, we wanted to keep it long. It was three years, I think my three-year uh, tour okay. out of the uh, global affairs, um, office of global affairs okay. uh, and HHS and um, uh, different change in administration. Uh, change in sort of approach to how they wanted to um, assign officers out to Pacific Command. Okay. Uh, you know, Admiral Carmona, I can't remember where he was in his tour, but he used to, he used to come out and visit me in Hawaii, which was a wonderful privilege. He wanted to see his DOD colleagues. And um, yep. it is a small world, by the way, that, and everybody, the, the network, I'll continue to hamper on this, but the, the network we have as officers is, probably one of the most valuable things you get out of your career, but, and it is a small world. So, so my uh, director at the time, Dr. Crabtree yep. in the army was actually um, worked with Dr. Carmona at the university of Arizona when they were going oh, through wow. and, and um, you know, I don't, I don't know if he was his attending or what, but there was a relationship between those two and they knew each other. And so when Carmona put me out there and they reunited and so it was, it was great, but uh that small world, trust me. And, and when you get into the things like global health or um, you know, expeditionary health, what we do now at AMI, it's a small world, right? And so yeah. the, the world of, of healthcare in general and uh, like what the Commission Corps does in our scope, it's you'll meet people from all over and you'll keep meeting them later on in life. And so mm -hmm. another thing out, you know, you gotta build bridges, never burn them. And you never know where you're gonna come up with or where you're gonna meet somebody again. Yep. I'm with you there. Um, yeah, and I, I love staying connected with the PHS family for sure. So uh, definitely some um, high-skilled individuals to say the least. So yeah, yeah. So you um, so you got to hang out with Carmona, uh, so to speak. Um, yeah, I did. Well, yeah, we yeah, yeah we did. So what was that? How did that affect you as an officer? I mean, he's a pretty strong personality. Um, how, well, yeah, here am I. I'm an 04, and that was another sort of moment in my career where I wanted to, you know, uh, emulate what he did. And, and, you know, everybody remembers when he was a surgeon general and come in the room and people would stand up and roar and stuff like that. And I thought, man, what, a, what an inspirational figure. And I, I hope someday I get the opportunity to do that. And if I do, I'll, I'll, I want to bring it home. You know, I want to do the same thing. And, uh, yep. um, and it's, and it really, no matter what people say, it's not about, it's not the feeling that, oh, look what, look, look at all these people, you know, like so excited to, to see somebody come in a room and, you know, it wasn't about that at all. It's that it's the energy and the, um, the feeling that like you can just energize and inspire so many people. Yeah. It's, um, it's, like I said, it's probably the most rewarding thing that I've ever felt that I had the opportunity to do. Um, even, even to this day, I don't know. I, I, I do a lecture that's off the shelf kind of about infectious leadership and um, mm -hmm. I, just, I do it now in retirement where, um, you know, you talk to different groups about infectious leadership, but, but it's that inspirational type feeling that um, releases the chemicals, your, your neurochemistry changes when you're inspired and that's a fact and people are more productive when they release those chemicals, those neurotransmitters, and that's a fact. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's such a good feeling and I can't even describe it really and and to have had the opportunity to to 
do something like Carmona, not to the magnitude maybe he did, but but certainly to inspire the troops was um, that's a privilege. So, what do you think was? And I'm a, to be honest, I'm a little um, ignorant to his some of his accomplishments while he was Surgeon General. What were some of the things that he did that you really appreciated and respected? Well, I mean, the main thing for me was that he changed the the way that we view the Corps. Um, the esprit de corps was his, his probably lasting legacy. Um, you could talk about reports from the Surgeon General, or uh, but his relationship with the with the armed forces, his camaraderie with the other Surgeons Generals um, yeah. of the other armed forces. Um, he, he, you know, he made us a uniform service respectable with the other uniform services for what we did, what we were specialists at. And he, you know, I think he might have been the one to say, you know, he he. You know, we are sort of a specialist group of military force, right? We're, I mean, the Marine Corps specialized, right? They're first in, last out, kind of that sort of hoorah attitude. And yep. our ethos with with disease and public health is is specialized to some degree. We're not a, a general force. We're a specialized force, right? So yep. not comparing to the Marine Corps, but analogous to the fact that we're specialized in, in, in many ways. So we should be proud, prideful of the fact that we're specialized. And we have a... A deep, we have a lot of depth and a lot of breadth of expertise in what we do. So much like the Marine Corps and what they do. Yep. Okay, that makes sense. And he brought along that sort of pride and and sure and camaraderie with the DoD, and you know that's that's how we behaved and acted, and that's it was um, gave us a lot of respect as a service. Okay, good to know. Yeah, I, he's another um, officer that I really need to uh, research more about. Obviously, yeah. I've heard of him and know oh, yeah. a little bit of him. So, um, And Scott, I just want to just uh, check in. Are we good on time? Or Absolutely. Okay. I, you know, why not? This is what I love to do, talk about the core and some of the things that, that um, are so great about the core and what we've done and, you know, what we can do. Okay, appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, so you left Pacific Command, and then your next stop was um, Indian Health Service headquarters, I believe. Yeah. Um, and you were then in charge of the National HIV AIDS program. You know, Indian Health Service is really hard. Um, I think a lot of people don't know that. And again, to some of our points we were discussing before, like I, I think you get so many, so many strengths and skills from being an IHS. Um, so from your perspective as a as a leader you've seen a lot of stuff like what are the biggest challenges in ihs and what did you see as some of your your big wins um being with ihs and and uh, where do you think it should go well the biggest challenge is exactly why we serve in their underserved and vulnerable population right so um that is their biggest challenge i mean um they just it's the resources and and the unfortunate history of, of the population. And yes, the government is, it's a double-edged sword for the, you know, the government sort of um, has a responsibility to American Indian Alaska Natives. And, and yet you, you want to see that them um, succeed, proliferate, integrate, assimilate, all the different things that, you know, you see some of these successful tribes that have, that have, um, maintained their their traditions and yet they've um their tribal entities have been successful um yep. they've managed 
uh, things well, their their own healthcare units at 638 is what we say. And when they take over and yep. see that success is wonderful. But then you see the other side of the coin where there's, you know, um, some of the poorest counties in the country are, um, you know, densely American Indian Alaska Native populated, right? Uh, yep. South Dakota, you know, some of the reservations in South Dakota. Yep. Um, so it, it's, it's difficult sometimes, but the bottom line, vulnerable, underserved, we do what we can do in the Indian Health Service, but it's not the it's not the final solution or final answer. Um, I think one of the you say one of the wins or some of the wins I had there. It's more like what I learned. You know what I learned. Um, you know, in each of my jobs was something different, and and for this one, which was helpful for me for my entire career, especially in leadership, was cultural fluency on steroids. Um, you know, to, to learn how to be culturally competent and culturally fluent is what I call it. Um, um, it's sort of on the spectrum of cultural ignorance, cultural awareness, cultural competence, cultural fluency. And that's like the highest, you know, level to, to get to a point. And I can't claim to be culturally fluent, but, mm-hmm. but what you learn to get closer to that point, um, American Indian, Alaska Native, Indian Health Service, that's the, what a proving ground, you know, if you can make it there. And so is the National HIV AIDS, uh, the director of the program, most have been American Indian Alaska Native, and I had I wasn't um, wasn't a physician, and and usually it's a physician to run that too. So I've always it's another thing that I sort of had this um, I cracked some of the multidisciplinary positions that weren't previously um, anything but physicians, right? So yeah, um, but to be in that role was really a leadership role. Uh, yeah, you had to have medical background or public health background, but but really it's being a leader and leading the program. And, um, you know, that in that, in that environment of cultural, you know, and in this and the need to be culturally fluent. So then you, when I say on steroids, you have the cultural fluency of being American Indian Alaska native environment yeah. and population. Then you throw the HIV AIDS in there with all the stigmatization, with all the, with all the sensitivities around that. Um, uh, at the time, you know, LGBT, um, you know, those issues. And for me to get, you know, sort of catapulted in from, Think about it, DOD, right? You go DOD, global health, which there's a lot of similarities with indigenous populations abroad into HIV AIDS, American Indian Alaska Native. So just a whole nother skill set that I had to have and you know, try to develop diplomacy and, and, you know, how am I going to bond, relate to, succeed in an environment where, um, yeah, okay, here comes a military white guy in uniform you know, trying to, uh, than he's normally used to, right? So um, that was a challenge. And, and uh, but boy, I loved it. Uh, one of those things I'd go back in a heartbeat and, and you know, redo, don't regret a bit, not a minute. Yeah. Um, so many wonderful people I met um, taught me so much um, about a lot of those things I just mentioned. So, um, you know, just a tremendous experience tried to help the population, try to have some wins as far as uh, yeah. program metrics, you know, programmatic metrics and succeed yep. milestones. Um, and then that was it. And then there was my transition into headquarters. Yeah. So this is the fun part. So hmm. at this point, <laughs> I would imagine, so this, now we're talking uh, around 2011 yep. um, or so. Yep. Um, and so, you, or, so you actually had two, you're, wearing two hats were you were you the cpo and uh, hq director correct 
Okay. Yeah. yeah I wow. started it. Yep. I started in 2010 as CPO. Okay. And between 2010 2014, which is the four year term, I, I, you know, went as the as the into headquarters as the director. Okay. Now, when you were at IHS, um, working with the HIV and AIDS program, is CPO CCHQ director? They didn't call it that back then. I think it was DCCPR. Um, were those things on your radar? Were you kind of gunning for it? What was your mindset at that point? Were you just going on the adventure? And Well, the CPO, I, I was interested in, obviously, because of Indian Health Service coming from there as a pharmacist. You know, you, yep. CPO is a great position to advocate for the, for the profession. So, yeah, I definitely, yep. I definitely wanted that leadership role. And, and, and that, once again, let me just real quick jump to that. The CPO thing was, was, was leadership and soft skills because you had there was no chain of command in cpo you had no authority really to do much as cpo other than to lead and advocate mm. by soft skills right influence and and advocacy mm. and you know people didn't have to follow you if they didn't want to it's not like you know it's a little different than it is now too and some of the cpos have a lot of sort of uh duties and responsibilities that that we didn't have as much and you really had to lead without that chain of command or authority over folks and so mm -hmm. um that was that was wonderful I, I was probably even better than leading when you do have a chain of command because then you have responsibility for other things and management yeah. but um yeah it was it was wild and fun so but yeah back to the to the transition yeah and, and i wasn't i was asked like yeah admiral lushniak at the time and uh, admiral halliday who was the chief of staff mm -hmm. uh you know came to me and said we really need you at headquarters and well, it was DCCPR. It was actually uh, not quite DCCPR yet, but it was almost DCCPR. And they said, you want to come in. So. Okay. So it turned into DCCPR once you got in there. Yeah, there was a okay. federal register notice and we had to combine, we had to take different pieces, all these different pieces of the core and, and amalgamate them together in DCCPR, but um, which okay. is really its headquarters was, is, Okay. It was just not called that because that was one of the things that that I can definitely say that that you know before it was headquarters commission court headquarters um, we we put it into the we put it into the language and coined it and and then put it into the Federal Register notice but the but the subsequent director was the first director of headquarters which is um, Susan Arcega was okay. Susan Arcega yep okay so when you got into um, headquarters what what surprises did you encounter um <laughs> kind of peeking behind the curtain were you like whoa I, I did not expect to to see well, that let me just say this in my entire career it was the hardest by far the hardest position I've ever held um it is even I mean far harder than the, the subsequent position that I had as the, the the acting DSG for for you know a long time mm -hmm. and, and the only reason we were in per I was in permanent evolution act acting I was acting but it was like permanent when you do it for almost two years it's kind of permanent right so yeah but um but um uh it was a hardest job it was just so there's so many um complexities of running a uniform service in general. Um, now that I'm retired, I can say when you were under-resourced, um, at the time it was a, a group of folks that were not 
um, supportive of the core. Okay. Uh, a lot of the political appointees at the time are not supportive, um, um, actively trying to not let us succeed. And, um, mm -hmm. and which is ironic because it was one of our finest moments during Ebola, um, you know, to come through with the shining. So it was, it was a constant battle, mm -hmm. um, which went behind the scenes, you know, because what we tried to project was um, what we did, you know, just the, the inspiration, the, the, you know, with Admiral Lushniak and, and it was a phenomenal partnership I had with him. And it was so, yeah. um, you know, the, to feel the core's energy, even amidst all the challenges and amidst the, the fact that they were once again, trying to get rid of the core yeah. all during our term of, of succeeding. So, you know, at such a high level and such visibility and meanwhile, behind the curtains, they're, they're trying to smash you with a sledgehammer, you know? So it's, it yeah. was, it was that level of, uh, disconnect that made it so very difficult and challenging as, as a role. Um, and then just the complete, I mean, take headquarters in phenomenal times and support. It's still very, very, very difficult because there's, it's such a complex uniform service to run. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't have a centralized budget. We have um, 18 different departments and, and government entities we, we, you know, assign officers to. And yep. I mean, you have to have all these different partnerships, all these issues, deployment, policy you know if, if, if you think about all those different things in another uniform service with support it would be difficult and so um yeah i mean i and boy the bond we developed admiral lushniak myself yeah um dan beck at the time um and everybody that was at headquarters at the time greg davis who's now admiral davis um um you know um <laughs> angela matungwa i mean just so many people got mm. held in um you bond and now and then the, and then the unit after us the, the leadership unit after us bonded the way they bonded you know admiral trent adams and so susan orsega and admiral hunter yep. because you go through that i'll tell you <laughs> there's nothing like it right so um, <laughs> so and, were there any i mean i know a lot of people um have received uh numerous criticisms about the core or know about those from whether it's OMB or just other um, sources, um, what were some of the things that you were getting that were you had to swat away and, and defend and kind of keep under control to keep the ship going? And age-old arguments, you know. I mean, yeah. we're just like civilians, you know, the typical, we don't do any different. Although, you know, we started deploying nonstop since Ebola, you know, so, I mean, but we always had. I mean, since 9-11, we've been deploying nonstop. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, you don't know much about the core until you're in need. And then when they step, and then we step up, the core is great. And then in a second later, you, they forget the core is there and needs support, needs, you know, funding and needs yep. appropriate line item funding, um, you know, because it's hard to advocate and uh, for us, um, you know, we don't have lobbyists, you know, we, we, we're a little hampered in, in a way the DOD isn't. And so yep. we have to hope that the, the, the secretary and those, um, political appointees to come in will support us or you're in a very tight situation because you're buried in the org chart of the department exactly yep. you can be very in, you can be made very invisible or you can be made very visible you know so much like admiral Dewa just did you know very visible out front with the president um and during this administration you know um so or the previous administration so yep it doesn't matter what administration doesn't matter democrat or republican you know the, the service can should and, and and does transcend all right 
It's about health, not, not about the politics. Yep. Amen. So to me, if I could wave a magic wand, I would want force management and more of a centralized mm-hmm. structure for the core. Um, do you think that's necessary or would, do you think that would be beneficial? How hard? I mean, to me, it seems like it would take a, an act of Congress to get that done, literally. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it does take Just that. a restructuring of, of our service. Um, do you see that as yeah. a force management as a real barrier or is that a, a distraction? It's really hard in the construct that we have now where we're assigned to agencies and the agencies yep. pay for our salaries. Yep. I mean, it's, it's an almost an impossibility. I mean, ideally, you know, essentially managed budget, but ideally, you know, if you think about, and I've tried to think this through a million times and, you know, to, to be more back in the, in the, you know, the, the way that it was structured originally where the surgeon general was more right under the secretary and it wasn't buried so deeply, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, to be, to be, to have commission officers be the heads of agencies like the NIH and, you know, yep. FDA and it's, it's it would be a lot different situation but assigning officers to each individual agency and then having them pay for us makes it a very very difficult um, construct to work within um, so ideally yes maybe centralized budget but we have to re rework the rubric of how we operate and who we report to and yep. you know we could be the secretary's uniform service much like secretary of defense has all the armed forces and the secretary of um, homeland security has the coast guard and um, you yep. know secretary of hhs has the commission corps but we're buried buried pretty deep um you know we, we actually and, and factually belong to a policy office which is oash Right, hmm. Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health. So that's not necessarily the way we operate or deploy or hmm. act. But, I never um, thought about it that way. Okay. You know, it's it's kind of an odd uh, matching, and yeah. so that's a little bit different as well. Okay. Uh, yeah. You no. Know? So anyway, there's a lot of things I, I would wave the wand at, but um, uh, you know, think about think about the if you could if you could, we have the mandate to do public health. And and um, you know response in anywhere any anywhere in the world and and it can be wielded by the secretary and if a secretary came in and said oh my goodness I'm one of four secretaries that have a uniform service in the entire U.S. government right if you think about all the departments where there's a uniform service whether it's any of the armed forces um, and us and Coast Guard NOAA everybody it's four secretaries that's it. And if you came in knowing, wait, I get a uniform service too. That's amazing, right? And I could embrace it. Yeah, you know, Tommy Thompson was a little bit more like that. Uh, you know, thinking about, um, and I'm not picking. Trust me, I, I, I have become very apolitical when it comes to what party I'm talking about. I don't even remember mm-hmm. some of the some of the folks I worked with, but um, it's just about how they utilize the core and, and um, utilizing the core for Ebola was, uh, you know, phenomenal. Uh, uh, difference in wheeling us for global health and because we had the mandate to do so because nobody did and that's amazing right the DOD has a, a war fighting capacity and and humanitarian assistance but it couldn't actually touch and care for patients overseas it wasn't in their SOFA agreement it wasn't in their bilateral you know they didn't have bilaterals but HHS was able to get us to, to be able to do direct patient care in another country so mm, we were the okay. only ones we were the that could do that and so you know 
by statute, we can do things that other thing other entities can't do. And and you know, new people, new political appointees aren't familiar enough with how to use the core in a way that would make their administration look phenomenal, right? So mm. I don't care which administration. Um, Interesting. That's one of the things we we kept we kept trying to push, 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 and and you know to use this. And that was in the story of how we got into Ebola was was a matter of convincing the secretary that we are in by statute allowed to do this. Hmm. Yeah. So I would love to hear that story. That was actually one of my questions. Is you know because there are these public health crises, humanitarian crises that pop up, and sometimes the core is involved, sometimes they're not. So I was curious with Ebola. How did the core get involved? You know, you mentioned a SOFA agreement, some stuff by statute that we could do, but the armed forces couldn't do. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that story and how we yeah. got involved? Well, so in our statute, and, um, and boy, I'm not really deep, see if I could think of this one. It's um, uh, uh, 42 USC 204A, potentially. It might be that or two. I can't remember exactly, but but we we talk about that that statute and it was um you know for for public health response or or, or um you know disaster response both foreign and domestic and those two those that little phrase they're both foreign and domestic mm. made it allowable for us to do that and we had to sort of go through the the secretary's council which is the lawyers and say look read this that, that she at the time of Sibelius can deploy us right yeah. um for Ebola but before all that I mean how we got involved we got involved because we have commission corps officers in every agency CDC was already there right before the big, big Ebola outbreak in in West Africa CDC was investigating and guess who was investigating corps officers it was tabbed as CDC but who was it in CDC that was doing it it was corps officers right EIS officers or, or deployable corps officers as we got more towards um, working with the U.S. government and, and uh, State Department, they involved um, one of my colleagues at the time, who's uh, Captain Mike Schmoyer now, Admiral Mike Schmoyer, right? And um, uh, he was working, and I think he was with either Office of Global Affairs, I think he was with Office of Global Affairs at the time, but he told the National Security Council, hey, you guys know we have a commission corps that can do this. And it sort of stimulated the questioning to CDC, hey, this commission corps can do this. And then CDC guy who's commission corps officer said, look at the headquarters of commission corps and start to ask them about, can they do this and talk to the Surgeon General. At the time, the Surgeon General was at Revolutionary, DSG. Yep. So um, they came to us and the secretary called Admiral Lushniak and Admiral Lushniak, um turned to us and, and talked to myself and Dan Beck at the time and his other, his chief of staff. And, um, you know, th think about it, the most deadly disease probably on the planet or one of them, we have zero training in Ebola, right? And the decision comes down without training and something the DOD is not going to do. We're going to deploy to a foreign country in a very austere environment in hot zones and take care of Ebola patients. Took maybe five seconds for us to say, yep, let's do it. You know, Amrilushniak said, call the secretary. I can't remember where the final call was at his home, whatever. He said, man, we let's let's do this, right? So, and I don't know his exact words I'm paraphrasing, but the bottom line, you know, Amrilushniak is just like, we can do it. You know, yeah. he probably put his hands up. We can do yeah. it. Yeah. So um, anyway, um, uh, and there we, then, there we were off. And he said, um, you know, 
you know, I don't think he had to actually ask. I was probably pounding on his door to allow me to to help lead it. And he said, yeah, do it, lead it. So um, wow. that's how that happened. And um, and uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for like, <laughs> yeah. Um, it just seems but like- You got to remember that that network, that was the network. It was, it was um, Admiral Jordan Tapero at the time. Um, and it was Mike Schmoyer at the time was the captain. And it was, you know, Admiral Lushniak, uh, myself, you know, actually going over and doing that. But, but three different entities, three different, um, you know, agencies in the U.S. government, all with commissioned officer leads that made it happen. It wasn't, um, you know, just within OASH or just within, because it probably wouldn't happen if it was like that. Okay, yeah. So Ebola, um, my history is a little fuzzy, but I believe it was from 2014 to 2015. It was really um, yeah. going on. And yeah, the heaviest, the heaviest time was probably late summer, early fall of 2014. Okay. And a lot of people that were getting infected were actually, so to your point, it was super deadly. I think it was like 40 or 50% fatality rate higher. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. Way higher. Okay. Yeah. It was probably more like 80% fatal at the wow. time. Uh, you know, I mean, if you get Ebola, yeah, it's uh, not like COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's very lethal, very, very lethal. Wow. And so, and, and my understanding is there's a lot of, a lot of their healthcare workers like that, they really needed to take care of their population were contracting right. it too. And that right. was the, the mission. Uh, but please correct me if I'm wrong, but that was kind of the, yeah. the mission was to go and make sure those people can actually stay, stay well and take care of the people that were getting sick. Right. So we went round and round the, the, the National Security Council, President White House. You know, what could we do? I mean, we're, we're not a huge force, right? We're not coming in the, the tens of thousands like military. Um, but what we could do was um, or what would be our best impact would be to take care of healthcare workers that became ill. So our clinic was specifically for or our Ebola treatment unit was specifically for uh, healthcare workers and sort of ancillary health related folks. But um. But the key wasn't the amount of folks we saw because, you know, honestly, we didn't see um, a ton of, of, we did have, you know, tens of Ebola patients, but not hundreds or thousands. And, and you know, some of the other clinics were much bigger and they were seeing nationals, you know, Liberian nationals or Sierra Leone um, nationals. But, but the difference was, and this is the, the, what turned the tide or helped turn the tide of Ebola was once we set up other healthcare clinics, other healthcare providers. Um, we had a, an influx of over a thousand um, primary care folks come to Liberia and the three, you know, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea um, after we set up our clinic. So, so I think we opened first week of November, and the first week of December, we had the the three countries had an influx of a lot of healthcare providers because they felt like, okay, well, if I do get Ebola. The you know American ETU is there, and we can get seen in a fairly decent Western, you know, si- Western style medicine kind of thing. So um, that's that's so it gave confidence for them to come in to okay. And and I don't know who said it changed the tide, uh, but um, you know it, it definitely. Yeah, I remember getting interviewed, and I said it was sort of a beacon. It was sort of a beacon for um, 
other countries to send their healthcare providers to say, mm. it's okay, you can do it. You know, we're, we're here, we're doing it. Yeah. You know, you can do it and we're here for you. So, mm -hmm. so how did the develop or how did the partnership with, because I believe it was the Air Force um, that you guys worked with that set up the, the um, hospital? How did that, or, or yeah. was it? Yeah. I mean, there was multiple folks at the CBs, um, Air Force, um, I think uh, 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 McGuire Air Force Base had a pallet of some of the, you know, sort of off, you know, the sort of Alaska tents and shelters and sort of yep. to build, but it wasn't just the Air Force that was building, you know, we had Army, we had 101st Airborne, we had, uh, okay. uh, I can't remember some of the other units that were there, but they all sort of chipped in to help build the entire, you know, sort of ETU and the and the grounds around it. They provided security. We had some marine uh, marine contingent that was helping us with security. Um, you know, because it was a pretty stressful environment, and you never knew what was going to happen. There's always the the nationals that believe it's a conspiracy, or that the Americans are bringing Ebola to Africa. You know, the typical sort of thing, um, which isn't isn't unusual. It's just the way it goes. But um, so yeah, we worked very closely with the DoD to build it. Um, and then we staffed it and managed it, try to make it work. And luckily it did, but I got to give credit to the, I mean, you know, <laughs> the, the hundreds of, of, I think we had 400, maybe we had almost a thousand people deployed, but 400 in the hot zone, in Ebola in Africa with the most deadly disease on the planet almost. And it's to, to think that they did that without real training for it. Of course, nobody had any Ebola care, but except for some NGOs that had been doing it, um, you know, wow. And I, rem I remember this, you know, we did, you know, back when it was deployment like that, we needed to know who would go and we can, we can deploy, you know, without asking, but this was such an unusual situation. We wanted to get sort of a sense of who, who is ready to do this. And we asked who would be ready. And within three days, we got 5,000 responses. There's only seven you know 6700 core officers and 5000 immediately said they would go and that's wow. that's you know you know unbridled volunteerism yeah <laughs> so and that's yeah i mean that and that's exactly the speaks to the underutilization of the phs as a whole yep. like you have people that okay for all criticize all you want like maybe they're not um not moving as much or going where they're needed sometimes but they they would like I, I feel like it's just an untapped resource where it's like these guys are ready to go they're super high level super high well, heavy trained you know as you think about it in our world right if you're talking to a marine and you're saying hey you know would you just get dropped off into battle and they would be like hell yeah right because that's that's what they do right and and they're and they're and they're lauded for their courage right because that's what that's you know courage under fire you know it's, it's amazing they're they're fearless right you think about 5,000 officers going to the most deadly disease on the planet without training. That's like saying, okay, here, Marine, here's your gun, but we're not going to train. That's what they, they train all the time to go fight in war, right? Mm -hmm. We are not trained to do what we volunteered to do. So that was true courage for those folks, for the, for the people that deployed. For I had a nurse that was maybe six months out of school and she got commissioned and then she got sent to Liberia in the hot zone. I mean, you got to be kidding me, right? So um, kudos and, and, you know, I mean, you can't say enough about the courage of those people, our people, you know, that, that did that. And, um, you know, when we were over there, you, I was right next to the Marines, you know, and the Marines were providing security, fearless. Mm -hmm. But when it came to, to 
that Ebola, they, they were very uncomfortable with the fact that we were in the hot zone and you know, that, that was an enemy that cannot be seen, shot at, touched, you know? Um, so it's a very different kind of courage, right? So um, exactly, they were very, they were very uh, proud of us and they gave us a tremendous amount of respect for what we were doing as we would always give them respect for what they do, you know? So Absolutely. Yeah, it's totally different game on both sides. And I just want to share with you really quickly a quote that I always um, reference about, or it came from a PHS officer, Milton Rosenau, I believe is his name. And he has a quote that goes to the effect of, you know, while not as glorious as taking a bullet in the battlefield, the doctor's mission while in the field. And he's like studying like, um, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, like all this, you know, these crazy unknown microbes, like in the early 1900s, he doesn't, you know, but he, he has a really great quote about like, it's not as like glorious as like going into battle, like taking bullets, but bacteria are deadliest bullets and invisible. So I always think about that quote and share that with people. Great. Yeah. Fantastic quote. So, um, I want to be respectful of your time. It's we've been we're coming up on two hours here almost, but um, I got to know what was it like to speak with President Obama, and um, and 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 again, like you and I'm sure I know there's other people involved in this, but you earned PHS the first presidential unit citation. Um, we got another one uh, for COVID, but just what was it like um, meeting President Obama and just being in that? situation well obviously honor um you know our relationship actually started and i say relationship because i'd met him like three times now but um when i was in liberia and the they said that and and i know that it was i think our assistant secretary for health at the time um was close with the administration and they he said you know who, who am i who do i need to talk to or who do i need to you know connect with and they gave my name and so the White House called my cell phone over in Africa and said, um, on Tuesday, um, you're going to get a call from the president. And I said, <laughs> my first response was, what president? Because I was thinking it was President Sirleaf Johnson, who I did have a lot of interactions with, and she was the president of Liberia. So I thought very logically, oh, you know, President Liberia is going to, and she's, and they said, no, the United States president. I said, <laughs> I said, who is this? You know, I thought it was probably one of our officers playing a joke on me or something, you know, but um, sure enough, it was the White House. And, and, on, and on Tuesday um, at 10 of 2, 10 of uh, 2, the, they got a call, the White House called the cell phone and said, um, uh, is this Scott? Yeah, how's the connection? Good. Can you hear me? Good. You know, and I was in a, I was in a gener, uh, an, an air controlled, uh, you know, Alaska tent that was connected to the hot zone. Mm-hmm. It was a green zone, but it was, um, we had to turn the generators down a little bit so I could hear. Um, and uh, the team was in the other tent just to, you know, hear what was going to happen. And um, they said, this is uh, the White House standby for the president. And it was silent. And then at right before two o'clock, uh, um, the gentleman said the president of the United States. And, um, and then president, the uh, first things he said, I think was, hey, Scott, how's it going? <laughs> and so... Uh, you know, we, I think we had, I, I, I did tape it. Believe me, I taped the conversation. I still have it on my, one of my laptops or my hard drives. It's, uh, I think it's about eight and a half minutes worth of discussion with President Obama. And um, look, I don't care what president you voted for, you know, talking to a president like that is, um, absolutely you know, an honor. And, and really, I was thinking about, boy, the core, you know, the core speaking to President Obama, not me, but um, 
what we're doing, what the team is doing, not me. I just happen to get to be the lead, right? So, um, you know, you're, you're, you know, that was the first time. And then the second and third, just different venues where we were at together. I had to introduce them at one and then the other when we were in the Oval Office getting me the, the puck. And so, um, you know, that was obviously, you know, another, another set of honors that was great for the core. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, hey, I'll tell I, you what, you know, I, I've spoken in front of so many venues, thousands of people. I've done, you know, commencements and, you know, talks at, at annual symposiums and fearless, no problem, love speaking, love getting around. You know, I, I'm really Shanak and I were always up on stage doing some goofy thing, you know, um, never was nervous in my life and uh, always actually wanted to be in the speaking role in front of a crowd and um, for the first time ever, I had to deal with a little bit of, of stage nervousness and, uh, and I couldn't figure out why, why my one knee was shaking, you know, and I, cause you know, President Obama was standing right next to the podium, looking over my shoulder, literally probably a foot away from me. And I was trying to read the script and, and remember, you know, I had memorized it, but I was trying to say it. And, um, yep. <laughs> yeah, that's a little different. So, um, I figure if I can handle that, I, I'll be all right in normal speaking environments. <laughs> yeah. It's that's a high bar. <laughs> but now I know what other people feel like when he's standing, when the president's standing right by you. You know, if they if they have a little, you know, mistake in their speech, you know, I can totally totally understand why. Absolutely. Um, I have two more things I gotta ask you about if if I can be sure. selfish here. So you were so you know, again, I just want to thank you for. Um, all your work with the Monrovia medical unit. And mm -hmm. again, I just, I, I, I see that as, um, you know, a sign of a symbol of what PHS should be doing all the time. And um, again, just thank you for your service with that, that mission. Um, well, but just remember though, it was a thousand people that did it and, and, yeah. you know, leadership came from many and in many different ways. And, um, you know, so yeah, it was a huge, huge service core, course, core level effort. Absolutely. Um, so you were exiting, you're exiting the core, you're about to retire. And then we have this thing called COVID hit. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, did you have any involvement? Were you, were you, cause I'm yeah. thinking how, how could PHS, PHS have gotten involved in a fashion similar to Ebola, but this is obviously on a world wide setting right. so um just what's your perspective of how we've how we've handled things did phs step up the way it needed to what was missing if anything i just would love to hear what so, you think well yeah i mean every response is different um yeah i think admiral jawa handled it admirably <laughs> if i may say so um uh you know he represented the corn uniform um i think I think the difference partly was that everybody was involved in COVID. Um, yep. Every doctor, every nurse, every yep. healthcare provider, pharmacist, whatever. Um, Ebola had the, the the different dynamic of, you know, we were very unique in what we did in our role and we were the only ones that could do some of the things we did. So yep. um, it was a little bit more defined. Um, and in this way, I don't think it was wrong the way anybody handled it. I think that um, we missed some opportunity to, um, to recognize the core as an entity in and of itself as a, as a service versus there were so many of us doing so many things in COVID, right? Um, and yeah. Admiral Joao leading it, obviously, in, in uniform up in front of the, um, it, it almost got 
lost in the shuffle because so much was going on with COVID and the whole world was, you know, doing some piece of it. Um, uh, but he did he did a great job representing us. And of course, and people forget Dr. Fauci was a commission officer. People forget, I mean, you know, that, that's never been mentioned. I mean, you know, it's- Exactly, it's, um, yeah. There's so many people that were involved that were commission core. And that's the one thing that is hurts us all the time because I don't know if you would identify as that, but I would, exactly. I mean, I knew he was a great officer, but- but if I were to ever come back in a civilian role and some suppose in the future Ebola hits again and they use me as some sort of a course, uh, you know, con consultant on, you know, wherever, Evolution Act on NBC, guarantee you, guarantee you that, um, you know, our time in the Corps would be coming up a lot. It so, would say, you know. It's going to say re Rear Admiral retired Scott Guyberson. Yeah, yeah. And those are the little things you had to make, you know, one of the, my responsibilities with the Corps, with the Ebola response was, in my mind, was to embrace that visibility and the opportunity to, and it's not, it's not exploiting it to promote the courts to say, this is a tool, a resource for exactly. the government to use and to, exactly. and to you know, you, <laughs> when you can, this is exactly how you should use this. And then one of the things about the Ebola response too, and I forgot to mention, is the first time we really didn't fall under the DOD in a response effort. So when we're part of Operation This or Operation Freedom or Operation, you know, whatever it is, we weren't, we, we did not want to be part of that because we wanted to be our own service with our own unique capacity to do what we did. And so instead of instead of not being at the table because we were under DOD command, we sat at the table next to DOD. And that was a huge difference in in the way we did it. Yeah. Um, and that's helped with the visibility. But so in this in this case, I think that that, like I said, everybody was involved. So that's sort of a. a a little bit harder to, to, to be as visible, but then just to recognize us as a as an entity specifically, Admiral Jawal was able to do it. Um, but as a core, we were so diluted with all this other stuff that had to be done with COVID, it was a little harder. Yep, exactly. Um, and I love that you brought up Fauci because yes, he is indeed a core officer, um, and he was part of the the so-called Yellow Berets. Um, that's a, I mean, and there's yeah interesting history with that, and uh, it used to be used pejoratively that term but they actually I actually read a really good article that I should share with you where um, a lot of the guys that came out of that were are all Nobel Peace Prize winners yeah. but so this brings me to the next and final question um, that I'll you know we can kind of end on it has to do with the uniform and I want to tie it into with the Surgeon General so that you know the guys uh, the Yellow Beret guys um, they didn't, they didn't wear the uniform. They weren't, they weren't necessarily proud of that or, and that could have been a, because of the culture at the time with Vietnam. Does it matter that, I, I mean, I know the, I have my answer to this, but does it matter that PHS is in uniform? That's, that's my first question for you. Yeah, the answer is 100% yes. I mean, in my, my eyes, the fact that we're in uniform is, it separates us from a number of ways. One, commitment. You are in uniform. You commit to things that other people don't have to commit to. Okay. I didn't. There was this one of the OBCs I did. I, I did a. Um, I think the OBC was on Veterans Day, and there was an essay written by this young young woman, like a real young woman. I think she was in middle school, maybe. And um, it said, you know, should everybody join a service? you know, in, in the United States for at least two years, right? So make force everybody to do that, right? 
And at first I thought, oh, heck yeah, nationalism, you know, esprit de corps, everybody should understand what it feels like to serve. But then I thought about it and, and it was a little bit different because I think the people who join the Corps commit to it because they're passionate about it and because they want to be in uniform. So, you know, I, didn't, I don't want somebody who doesn't want to be in uniform, right? I don't want somebody who doesn't want to commit to sacrifice, to do things differently. It's not the easiest life. Yeah, we, we want you to deploy a lot. And yeah, we want you to go to different places in the United States and work for the Indian Health Service or work underserved populations, Bureau of Prisons, um, you know, ICE Health Service, Corps Detention Centers, you know, whatever. Uh, it's not the easiest path, but that's why you commit. And that's why you put the uniform on to say, hey, look, I'm committed. Here it is. Here's a meritocracy that I got to prove myself to get up in the ranks. Uh, here's a, it's going to take time. I know that. And you know what? I'm not going to get paid to some of my colleagues in the private sector, uh, but it is such a prideful thing. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If not, we'd be much too similar to a civilian. And even DOD suffers from that same, you know, they're outsourcing so many things that the DOD used to do, you know. Uh, healthcare in general, they're outsourcing more, you know, so Coast Guard, DOD, uh, DHA, you know, all those things. So yeah, um, yeah, 100% in uniform. I'm, I'm with you there. Okay. Last question. And so you said earning rank, you just said, you know, go through the ranks. Uh, does it matter? And again, Lushniak was Again, even me coming in um, pretty, um, you know, towards the end of his career, I, I remember seeing him speaking and I know the, the sense in the court at that time was everybody wanted him to remain Surgeon General. He was acting for a little bit. He's a great leader. Um, he's from the ranks, right? Does it matter that the Surgeon General comes from the ranks? There's two answers for that. It's yes and no. Um, you, he, Admiral Lushnick would be the first to tell you the same thing that I'm about to tell you. Um, having been there and done that, there's certainly the piece that you'll hear Admiral Carmona talk a lot about. Absolutely should come from the Corps, right? Um, the Surgeon General should be promoted from within, from the Corps. And, and that's in days past, that is the way it used to be long ago, right? And um, um, that is a wonderful sense of both pride, both accomplishment, meritocracy, right? You've earned it. You're the best of the best, right? And uh, and a physician, though, and, and you get to be placed as a surgeon general. So I think there's incredible value in that from a understanding the government, understanding all the different dynamics of government agencies, which is very, very hard for a political appointee to pick up on sometimes. Um, understanding the uniform service and, 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 you know, sometimes you get people who are very squared away, and uniform and sometimes you have to really do a lot of education and help them out with it and it just depends that's the pros of, of coming from within the core right that depth and breadth of experience and understanding of government and how it works but the one thing that we lacked and and like i said we'd both be the first to admit the connectivity to the white house and and if you really want to push advocacy and to change things having a direct tie to the president or the White House is a huge tool that you have as a Surgeon General. And if you don't have that connection, um, it's it's very tough sometimes, right? It, it, it hampers you politically. And um, everybody knows that health and politics, even more so than ever now, are intertwined. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons. Ideally, you I think ideally, you'd be a, a, a person from the ranks that has the direct connections to the White House. That's yeah. hard. That's how, 
that's how it used to be, uh, you know, World War II, all those, the good old days. So I think about this a lot, it bothers me a lot. Um, and would it make sense, I just wanna bounce this idea off you, would it make sense for the Surgeon General to not wear the uniform out of respect of the uniform service itself? Obviously you'd be losing the visibility of the uniform, but um, and in some ways I would, I would want the person to say, you know what, I actually really respect this service and I understand I'm not coming from it. And again, like rank really matters. Um, you know, medals, ribbons, like those things, like, um, so I don't know, what do you think about I mean, that? I don't think, I don't know if that's happened, but I definitely, um, would respect that if somebody chose to do that. Mm -hmm. I think, um, now we get into the situation where look at the, the, you, you never know when it could be to the advantage of the core as a service versus not. I mean, you know, um, different surgeons generals and different now assistant secretaries for health starting, you know, as with Jawah, where we wore the uniform and we've had others, yep. uh, Admiral Aguanobi, um, you know, um, there, there's different surgeon generals and assistant surgeon generals in the past that have, or uh, ashes in the past, secretaries for health in the past, but it just depends on the personality and, and you know, I guess the option is there. Um, if somebody, I would respect somebody who said, well, you know, I'm not, I don't feel comfortable in this role and I don't know if I'd represent well enough. So I, I don't really want to use the uniform, but it is a visibility piece and it could be, it could help promote the core. So that's a tough question. I mean, you know, sometimes we love the fact that they would wear, if Admiral Carmona didn't wear it, you know, who knows, Admiral Jawa, you know, um, yep. um, um, yeah. So, I mean, there's in the past and present, a lot of value to it. And, and in, in some ways it's, it's hard if you get somebody who doesn't really look or, or um, uh, look like they have pride in, I don't mean physical look, I mean, yeah. look like they have pride in the uniform or they don't carry it like they should as that high of a ranking of an officer, that presence that I'm talking about, then sometimes detracts from the uniform and yeah. then we get, then we get the rumors that start about it, you know, so um yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting question, but. You know. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. So I'm glad to hear your insight on it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, this has been, uh, a huge treat. Um, thanks. Hopefully you, um, found value in it and oh, it's it, great. maybe it was cathartic for you. <laughs> it is. It really is. Boy, I'll tell you, this is a good evening. Normally I, I'm, uh, you know, pretty just exhausted from work and, and watching something useless on the television or Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I was watching Hot Zone on Netflix the other night, just that series about yeah, yeah. anthrax this season. But um, I always look at that and, you know, you, 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 it brings you back to certain things, although embellished to, for TV or, you know, sensationalized for TV, but um, yeah. you can relate to some of the things. So. Absolutely. Well, uh, Admiral Guyberson, I really appreciate this. And um, yeah, I, in some ways, just feel I, I don't know what to say. Um, just thank you um, for all your work. And again, if anybody looks at what you've done, I, I, I just very thankful for what you've done for the public health service, which I hold dear to my heart. And um, it's been really good. So I appreciate it. Well, I, of course, appreciate it, too. Just want to um, tell everybody out there, you know, that, that I got to serve, had the privilege to serve with. And, um, you know, we've been through so much as a core 
and we've endured for so long since 1889. I have confidence that we'll continue to endure. We'll continue to be at the crux of, of the public health of the nation. And um, we have so many good people in the Corps that, that you know, we will prevail no matter what. So um, we'll have to adapt, we'll have to be flexible, we'll have to change again and again and again. But I think we're on the right track and I think we'll, we'll be there for another hundred years. Thank you. Thanks, appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to this episode on PHS Proud Audio Time. If you enjoyed this episode, could you do me a favor and leave a review on the podcast platform that you use? This really helps other people discover the platform so that we can spread the good word about the U.S. Public Health Service. Better yet, let a fellow officer know, family member, or friend know about this podcast so that they can learn about the unique history and culture of the U.S. Public Health Service. Thank you.